The degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. Dostoevsky said that, and he spent four years in a Russian prison camp in Siberia with his hands and feet bound the whole time, so he knew what he was talking about. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today, including an excerpt from the documentary William Kunstler, Disturbing the Universe, and clips from Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, The Real News, Counterspin, and The Tom Hartman Program. The national mood of political unrest and protest filtered into the United States prison system. And on September 9, 1971, prisoners at Attica Correctional Facility seized control of the prison. The prisoners took hostages and demanded better living conditions. The conditions at Attica were awful. There were no education programs. There were no people of color as guards. The medical care was horrendous. Uh, there were all sorts of grievances, and um, there was a group of people who wrote these grievances down and attempted the state to get to the state to look at them, and the state refused to look at them, and the entire prison was taken over, and 1,289 inmates took over D Yard, which is one of the four exercise yards at, at Attica. They called for negotiators, and um, negotiators were allowed to come in, and your father was immediately called. Your father was in the middle of every bit of this, and it was both his a, a bad moment for him and a great moment for him. As he walked into D-Yard, my father was painfully conscious of his white middle-class prejudice. He told me he worried that he and the other observers might be murdered by the prisoners. He went in as a negotiator, just like everybody else, but being Bill and being more courageous than most people and also being uh, an actor, you know, a person who wanted to act, not contemplate. Uh, in short order, he, he was the person in charge. He was going to be the lawyer for the inmates. Dad came to see that the prisoners were taking a courageous and organized stand for their rights and he wanted to stand beside them. All of you that say you're politically oriented... They have a list of what they call practical demands. Just about every one of them have to do with the improvement of prison conditions. This is not a riot of prisoners who are seeking to escape. It is a riot of prisoners who are eminently practical and who are spelling out conditions which they feel should be improved. We want to apply the New York State minimum wage law to all state institutions. We want to stop to slave labor here. We want to allow all New York State prisoners to be politically active without intimidation or reprisal. We want true religious sanctity. We want to do our own thing in this place. Number four, in all censorship of newspapers, magazines, letters, and other publications coming from the publishers. Five, Bill Kunstler and I were talking to them, and Bill was more optimistic than I was. He felt that they were not going to come in shooting. 
But I told them, listen, my experience is when people have guns and tanks and tear gas, they're going to use it. He made a big mistake. He didn't go to them and say, listen, there are 500, 600 law enforcement out there. They're all being lied to. They all have this unbelievable amount of weapons. And if you don't agree, they're going to blow you away. No one told them that. I think Dad was caught up in the idealism of the moment. He wasn't realistic about what the prisoners' options really were. You've got to negotiate for an amnesty. And if that real amnesty is obtained, it's on two levels. That there will be no administrative reprisals. And to that, the commissioner has agreed. But there must also, if this is your thought, be no criminal reprisal. Amen. After three days of negotiations, Dad watched as armed troops amassed outside the prison gates. He and the other observers asked for more time and pleaded for Governor Rockefeller to come speak to the prisoners. And when the inmates mediator, William Kunstler, was turned away at the prison gate, he took that as a sign that the attack was imminent, that his two days of work to end this uprising peacefully had failed. What did the guard tell you? He said he had just received orders that no one but uniformed personnel would be permitted in. Why do you think that they're not letting you in, Mr. Counselor? I think they're killing people. 5 a.m. September 13th. We're on the roof of A Block, waiting for the assault to begin. This is a team of 270 rifle shooters. Your instructions are that your weapon is not to be taken, nor are you to be taken. You're to meet force with force. There have been uh, some of the prison personnel severely injured here this morning, and we certainly don't want to see any of our people hurt. started shooting. It was like all hell broke loose. And the shooting just seemed to go on and on and on and on and bullets were hitting all around and you could hear people crying and you could hear people dying. And uh, it was just like they indiscriminately shot everyone. I smell gas. This up. Some sort of uh, tear gas. And I heard the sound of shooting. And I knew that people were being murdered inside there. And uh, I began to cry. Good evening. The four-day insurrection at New York's Attica State Prison came to a tragic end this morning. Negotiations gave way to force, making this the bloodiest prison incident the country has seen in four decades. Power. 450 people, 
fired over 4,500 rounds of ammunition, including uh, weapons with ammunition that's outlawed by the Geneva Convention, dum-dum bullets that exploded on impact. In the final hours of the revolt, led primarily by blacks, the inmates murdered nine of their white hostages. 28 convicts were killed by state troopers and sheriff's deputies who regained control of the prison. Prison officials told the press that the hostages were killed by prisoners who slit their throats. But they lied. Everyone who died that day was killed by state gunfire. the 45th anniversary of the Attica Uprising, one of the largest prison uprisings in U.S. history, it began September 9, 1971, over prison conditions. On September 13th, five days later, four days later, the New York governor, Nelson Rockefeller, called out the state troopers. They opened fire, killing 39 men, prisoners and guards critically wounding scores of others and injuring hundreds more. Our guest is the woman who's written the definitive book on this. It's just out, Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and Its Legacy, Heather Ann Thompson, a professor, American historian at University of Michigan, and David Rothenberg, who back in 71 was a member of the Attica Observers Committee, one of 35 people brought into Attica to negotiate on behalf of the prisoners. He would go on to found—no, he went—he was founded already, right, yeah. the Fortune Society for people coming out of prison to help them transition. Um, the Muslim prisoners, David— they, well, in, in your book, you validate what we witnessed. It was the Muslim brothers that protected the guards that were the hostages. They surrounded them. Make sure they knew that they had to be protected and saved. Heather, in, indeed, I mean, uh, the the yard was peaceful. Uh, the yard was organized in no small measure to the Muslim brothers in the yard, uh, the Attica brothers, who were insistent that the hostages were important and that the men sitting there in that circle would have mattresses to sleep on and food to eat. And that was crucial because at the end, uh, that's why the guards are asking Rockefeller to try to help these guys and do the right thing rather than gun them down, which, of course, is what happens. Yeah, you also... Uh write in your book that um, that uh, Minister Farrakhan, who the prisoners had requested to be one of the negotiators, uh, declined to do so because supposedly the, uh, the leader of the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, had told him not to. Well, um, that was certainly evidence that I found. But it was interesting because a lot of people were asked to come and for a variety of reasons they couldn't be there. And yet there are so many observers, such as David, and those folks played a remarkable role. I mean, they kept insisting again and again that they stick to the negotiations, that the state negotiated in good faith. And indeed, at the very end, were calling Rockefeller, insisting that he at least come to Attica, at least assure these guys that if they surrendered, that they would not be harmed. 
armed, and he refused to do it. And and in, why? Well. For multiple reasons, but not the least of which was his own political ambitions. His party had moved very much rightward. He wanted to impress the Republican Party that he was tough on crime. But also it was a black rebellion. Describe what you write in the book about the breakfast. I'm reading the book and I just threw it down when she was describing the planning strategy. Yeah, well, they were very clearly intent on going in with force from the very beginning. The only reason, incidentally, they didn't go in earlier was because of the observer team there. And when they finally do go in, I discovered that they deliberately don't tell the prisoners that it's going to be a bloodbath if they don't give up. They don't give them an ultimatum. And while it's happening, Rockefeller is eating a scrambled egg breakfast (laughs) with bacon in his mansion and is being congratulated by Richard Nixon for having handled this so beautifully. What, was Rick- what about Oswald, the, the, um, the uh, warden, his role? Well, Oswald was a very tragic figure. Yes. He was a liberal uh, prison reformer. Um, he was it really is his insistence that negotiations continued as long as they did with his own uh, people in the Department of Corrections. But at the end of the day, um, he uh, proves very ineffective in halting what has been decided above his pay grade, which is I, there's going to be a retaking. I always said he was a good man who failed history. Yeah, he I think didn't that's right. Rise because he had been paroled, he became commissioner of correction because of his progressive position as right. as parole head, and he was considered a leader. And the fact that he went up there was unprecedented. He went. One of the pictures is, is him sitting with the. He went in the yard, but he was. He didn't understand them. Exactly. exactly. He he was he was a. Uh, I don't know how you describe a uh, academic. No, Why, I, I don't want to blame. I the want academics. to ask about the negotiating team. You and the negotiating team. If you had stayed in the yard, would the state troopers have opened fire? What word did you get? Were you well, told to leave? Uh, we were in and out, and and eventually it was reduced down to five people: uh, Clarence Jones, Kunstler, um, John Dunn, Herman Badillo, because we felt we were too cumbersome a group. But there were points in the—we would meet after the takeover for months and months at Kunstler's house, and the feeling was we would have been killed had we stayed there. One of the most important things in the book that I discovered was there was a myth for years after Attica that the hostages that were killed was uh, was a, a, a mistake, accidental, shouldn't have happened. And it's very clear that the state knew the hostages were going to die. Uh, they discussed it before they went in, and their own state employees were dispensable. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that had the observers been in there, uh, the, there was no controlling this once it was unleashed. These prisoners were at the mercy of people who had been for four days uh, passing out weapons indiscriminately. And uh, when they went in, these troopers took off their identifying badges mm-hmm. so that they would not be held accountable for what then happened. They used some, some of them use their personal guns as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, and, and and you also seem to uh, 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 talk about this question of when some of the uh, the prisoners were killed. Was it all in the initial shooting, or were some deliberately killed by the guards afterwards? Well, I think the evidence is pretty clear that, um, as David has said elsewhere. Um, Law enforcement had control of this prison from the moment they dropped the gas. The gas is a powder. It clung to people's nasal passages, made them sick, incapacitated everyone in the yard. Then the shooting begins. For 15 minutes, it continues. And what is significant is that all of the observers reported later that they could still hear gunfire many hours later that day. And many of the prisoners reported that 
not only had people been killed after the retaking, but the very specific men had been targeted by law enforcement. Bar Barclay and Melville people have told me that they had seen them alive after the takeover. L.D. Barclay, who was so eloquent and whose voice was heard on national television during the protests, was targeted, as was Sam Melville, who was perceived as a traitor to his race this because he was white. The second epigraph in the book is a quote from the National Guardsman James O'Day, uh, who describes an incident at Attica. This is the National Guardsman, quote, The officer pulled out a Phillips screwdriver and told the naked inmate to get on his feet or he'd stab the screwdriver into his rectum. Then he just started stabbing him. That's right. In the aftermath is when the real brutality begins. The uh, doctors are trying to help prisoners while guards are dumping them off of stretchers, kicking them, uh, urinating into wounds, uh, making the most horrific scene unfold. And indeed, this National Guardsman, among many, was trying to tell people outside what was happening. Uh, this particular man tried to get uh, the Justice Department to look into this. He, he called the FBI. He called the Justice Department. And again, at every level, people abandon these guys to this fate. Why the book is so powerful is a lot of these stories I heard over the years, one by one from individuals as they came out. To see it collected at one time gives you that overwhelming sense of what the state did and didn't have to do. And you also say that the, the, some of the records you found, investigators concluded that the uh, particular uh, guards killed particular prisoners, but never pursued any attempts to charge them with those. That's right. And of course, there are many more records we have yet to see. But the records I did see indicated that despite the attempts of the state police to tamper with evidence and conceal evidence, uh, there was evidence. And that evidence not only indicated specific troopers that had killed specific inmates, but also specific troopers who had killed specific hostages. And those people could have been indicted. Um, and instead, the state chose to indict 62 prisoners for all that had gone wrong at Attica, again sending the message to the world that Attica was about prisoner uh, barbarism uh, and that those sorts of people don't deserve basic human rights. And the names you name have never been named publicly before. That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and indeed, um, what surprised you most? Who did you talk about? Uh, what surprised me most was actually not the lower level troopers who I name, uh, but, but actually the highest level troopers, uh, the head of the New York State Police, uh, who, people who would literally step in to make a low level trooper resign rather than face prosecution. Uh, top police officers who are tampering with photographs. Um, uh, but again, the, the, the responsibility still lies with the state of New York. They're the ones that sent these guys in and then afterwards allowed these guys to investigate the retaking that they had just carried out. And the settlement? The settlement against the, uh, with the, the prisoners? Well, the settlement was very important. It took 30 years. It took, uh, determination on the, uh, the part of these men, such as Frank Black, Big Black Smith, to stick with it. Um, but I think the nation was also feeling like they finally got justice. Uh, no brother feels like they got justice. Um, it was a pittance, uh, for some people. It was $6,500 for a, a death at the end of the day. Um, and the cost was, uh, still there because the state still still has not re admitted responsibility, uh, still denies that anything happened at Attica. A comment on the prison strike today. 
Well, I think uh, we're back here, and we're back here in no small part because uh, the nation failed to learn the lessons of Attica, and uh, we created one of the most brutal uh, prison societies in the world. And as was the case in Attica, when you treat people as animals uh, and they are human beings, they will resist, and we are seeing that across the country again today. The degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. Dostoevsky said that, and he spent four years in a Russian prison camp in Siberia with his hands and feet bound the whole time, so he knew what he was talking about. Unlike Dostoevsky, most of us never enter prisons to see what the conditions are on the inside. Groups of activist inmates are trying to change that, however, with a nationwide call for prison strikes over what they describe as the inhumane and unconstitutional working conditions inmates face in the U.S. prisons. Today, there are around 2.4 million prisoners in the U.S. and roughly 900,000 of them work. While most of this work is done within the prison itself or for the public sector, some private corporations take advantage of the incredibly cheaper free labor that prisons offer. Corporations like Walmart, Whole Foods, and Victoria's Secret get tax breaks to take advantage of prisoners who work eight hours a day without union representation and who make between 23 cents to $1.15 per hour. That's over six times less than the federal minimum wage. So technically, a prisoner making the McDonald's uniforms earns less than the person wearing it. Now, advocates for prison labor claim that these work programs teach prisoners invaluable work skills and allow them to earn a higher wage than other prison jobs while offsetting the cost of housing for inmates. The fact that a few giant corporations get to save millions of dollars in labor costs by paying inmate workers virtual slave wages, that's just a lucky coincidence. Well, according to the Free Alabama Movement, one of the groups leading the organized prison strike, Prison labor is, in fact, just a modern form of slavery that's only allowable because of the working of the 13th Amendment. In a public statement calling for the strike, the group said the following. Prisoners are forced to work for little or no pay. That is slavery. The 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution maintains a legal exception for continued slavery in U.S. prisons. It states, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States. Now, overseers, watch over our every move, and if we do not perform our appointed tasks to the liking, we are punished. They may have replaced the whip with pepper spray, but many of the other torments remain. Isolation, restraint positions, stripping of our clothes, and investigating our bodies as though we are animals. This strike, which was planned to coincide with the 45th anniversary of the legendary Attica prison riots of 1971, is already underway at other prisons in Florida, South Carolina, and Texas, and organizers hope the labor action will spread to 20 more. They hope to demonstrate that without prison labor, many U.S. prisons simply will essentially cease to function. The inmates say that they are not only fighting for higher wages, but also to challenge the policy of mass incarceration that has led to decades of skyrocketing imprisonment rates. Now, conditions in America's overcrowded and overly punitive prisons should be a scandal. 
and not just because so many inmates are compelled to work for practically no pay and subject to excessive punishments, all often in the service to the bottom line of major corporations. Dostoevsky was right. As a society, we do deserve to be judged based on how we treat our prisoners. But to make that judgment, we first have to acknowledge the reality of life inside those prison walls. These brave inmates currently going on strike for improved conditions are demanding that their voices be heard. But the question remains whether the rest of us are ready to listen. Welcome to Rattling the Bars. I'm Eddie Conway, and today we're discussing prison slavery in U.S. prisons. Recently, I interviewed Asatar Bear. He is an assistant professor at Riverside City College and also the author of Prison Labor in the United States and Economic Analysis. This is the first Marxist analysis of prison economy. Can you explain the significance of class to your study? The concept of class in in Marxism um, it has a it has a long history, right? There's many people working in the Marxist tradition who have defined class in different ways, uh, and some of these definitions go back long before Marx. Um, so the idea that classes are composed of, you know, rich versus poor or the powerful versus the powerless or sometimes in terms of a cultural elite, those who have influence uh, and versus those who don't. Um, what was unique to Marx is that Marx pioneered the concept of surplus value. And so class, you know, in, in Marx's unique typology was concerned with the production appropriation of surplus value. Um, and that is different from all of these other forms. So, you know, the, the questions that come up when you use class in its surplus value uh, formulation is, well, who, who is producing and who's appropriating? So that's a that's a question that I, you know, am at pains to answer in the in the book. Um, and then the next thing that comes up is like under what conditions? What's the. What is the, um, you know, the social and political and economic forces that make up the context of that production that, that create the relationship between the producer and, and the appropriator that allow this to, to happen? Uh, so there's a unique constellation of forces that, you know, I argue in the book produces slavery in prisons. Uh, and, you know, just since there's a lot of different definitions of slavery out there. Um, you know, I call it the, the slave fundamental class process. So that's sort of a signal. I'm using this surplus value definition. And, you know, this, this is following in the, uh, the training that I received, uh, from, uh, Stephen Resnick and, and Richard Wolf, who are my, my, uh, research advisors in, in graduate school. What is the slave fundamental class process and how is it different from other forms of slavery? 
Well, Marxism focuses on the labor process, right? So we, it's not about your identity exactly, right? It's about the process of performing labor. And the question is, what kind of relationships exist in the labor process at the point of production? So from that perspective, then, you know, I, I created a definition of slavery. I call it, you know, it's like a thin definition. What is the slave fundamental class process? So I say, look, it, it, it requires the ownership of a person's labor power. So I don't define it as the ownership of a person, but rather the ownership of their ability to perform work. And, you know, this, this fits with what we know about prisons because in prison, the, the person of the inmate is not owned. You know, you can't, there's no market, for example, you can't buy and sell inmates, but their ability to perform work, that's their labor power. That is clearly owned. Uh, it's, it has a legal definition under the 13th amendment. So very strong constitutional basis in law. It says, you know, no one shall be enslaved except as punishment for a crime. Um, so it's, it's legal to, you know, compel somebody to, to work, or to, to basically to own their labor power is, is legal, um, under the constitution, highest law of the land. Um, and we also accept it culturally and socially. So we, we reaffirm that ownership of labor power and by, basically saying it is right, it is just, uh, we, we accept it. Um, now, I think that might be changing. It's like a lot of things about prison. We, uh, we accept a view that is not very well informed. And the more we look at it, then the less we might accept it. You know, um, it's a lot of hidden aspects about, about prison life. Um, so, the other thing that I see as key to to this is that the the reproduction of labor power, that is the what is necessary for an individual to continue to be able to perform labor. You know, we need certain things, right? We need food, clothing, shelter. And then we have, you know, there's a bunch of social needs that are overlaid on top of that. Um, and in in slavery in the slave fundamental class process, that reproduction of labor power is the responsibility of the of the slave master. All right. So that's different than other forms like capitalist fundamental class process. The worker is paid a wage. No, nobody provides you with what you need to live. Right. That's that's your responsibility. So we would say the reproduction of labor power is outside of the purview of that relationship between the producer and the appropriator. What are some of the factors that have reduced commodity production inside prisons from 1885 to 2001? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, being enslaved in in the past, so like going back to the mid and late to late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, the rate was close to 100 um, percent. So, you know, it, Every inmate basically worked uh, unless, you know, there was some kind of, uh, you know, medical reason not to. And then even then, you know, there were, you know, there were very brutal prisons where inmates worked, even if they were they were very sick and infirm um, and often perished as a result. Um, But over time, um, you know, 
there was basically two forces that, that reduced the extent of prison commodity production. And one was labor unions. Labor unions did not like the, that, that they were you know, in competition with inmates. And the other one is outside capitalist firms um, who said, well, you know, production in prisons has an unfair advantage uh, because you're, you're, using, you're using labor that you can compel. Um, and there's plenty of evidence that says, you know, that, that the standard of living was much lower in prisons. So that would, you know, in, in, in Marxist language, that, that would be to say there's a different value of labor power. Because the value of labor power, right, this is, like I mentioned earlier, this is what is necessary biologically, but also socially in order for a person to continue to labor. Um, so, you know, it's it's the food, clothing, shelter, that's the bio, biological part. But there's also an additional amount which we add socially, right? Um, like, you know, that we that when we think about where do you sleep, right? I mean, like we have different standards for just for bedding than than, uh, you know, somebody might have had 200 years ago, say. Right. So society's notion of of what is necessary has evolved uh, along with, you know, technology and, and our ideas about how how a person should live. Right. So with with inmates, we had the idea that they should live substantially worse than everybody else. Um, so, you know, outside companies are basically making this argument. Um, you know, you, you have an unfair advantage uh, over us. And so they lobbied to reduce the opportunities of um, of prisons to sell their commodities. So one act said that um, federal the federal government will not buy commodities produced by state prisons, um, but they, they can still buy federally produced commodities. But, you know, that's a limitation of the of the market. Right. And. Other other states and jurisdictions, you know, passed similar things. And so the opportunities for for prison production got sort of narrower and narrower um, and it and it reduced the rate of enslavement over time. Um, That's not due to the prison itself. That's that's due to outside forces impinging on that. Um, We know that prisons have been run with very close to 100 percent enslavement in the past. and, you know, uh, it produced a very violent and, you know, brutal kind of form of, of slavery. Uh, and some of these uh, some of these prisons were economically self-sufficient. Some of them were more than self-sufficient, like they returned big revenues uh, to the state. So not only were they able to pay all the costs of the prison, they were able to do more than that, which they turned over to the state. So they were actual revenue generators for the state and and that changed as as fewer and fewer inmates were enslaved and society be, got the idea that they deserve a better standard of living in prisons. Uh, and this is in the, you know, in the early to mid 20th century. Some of this stuff was coming to light, just how brutal the conditions were. Um, and people said, you know, this is wrong. Um, we need to we need to do more for inmates. So those those two forces saying, well, they, they deserved a greater standard of living and then fewer of them were working changed the cost and revenue picture for prisons. Um, and it led to a situation where there were, there were fewer and fewer inmates enslaved. Um, now to me, that doesn't affect the, the argument that doesn't affect the argument as to whether or not what happens in prisons 
can be called slavery. Um, the, the percentages are aside from that, right? Like I said, those are determined by, by other structural forces. They don't have to do with the relationship between the producer and the appropriator. Uh, and that, you know, like I argued, that's, that's what we call slavery. What do you think are some of the solutions to the crises of prison slavery? You know, I, I think the um, one one thing that would help is is to to change the legal conditions, right? So we we have this idea, like I said, constitutional amendments, the Thirteenth Amendment, that says basically enslavement is okay as long as somebody is being punished uh, for crime. Um, I'd like to see that repudiated. Um, I don't think that fits with our current understanding, our current morality. Um, I don't think, you know, I think that's a, a holdover from a, an earlier era. I think our ideas have have changed and that that amendment doesn't really reflect that. Um, the idea that somebody should be punished with enslavement. Um, I just don't think that there's um, that there's a kind of majority behind that idea. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, we, we want to distinguish between inmates working versus inmates being enslaved. Um, I think work is a very important aspect of, of human development and that it's cruel to deprive people of, of work. And that's part of what happens in prison is that the, because the, 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 um, you know, the, the, let's say the employment opportunities, let's forget about the class process for the moment and just say the employment opportunities, the ability of inmates to work has been really curtailed. Um, and so, you know, inmates receive a, a lot of rest and, and not a lot of opportunity for productive work. And I would like to see that change, but, you know, people have a, a you know, kind of a, a simple minded view of this, like, like, inmates either work more or they work less. To me, that's not that's not enough. We, I want to know what are the conditions under which they work? What is what is the deal? And in particular, Marxism gives us this unique lens to look at it like, well, who appropriates the surplus? How does that work? And, you know, we have this this model that emerges from the tradition, too, that says we want to see that the the appropriation of surplus being done by the workers themselves. Uh, so the the person who produces is also the person who takes the product and makes decisions about what happens to it. Uh, now, nobody gets to keep the entire product of their labor. There's always, you know, there's always different payments that have to go out. But the question is, who controls that process? Does the worker, whether it's an inmate or anyone, maybe it's a worker outside prisons, does that worker have a voice in terms of deciding what happens to the fruits of their own labor? Uh, and I would like to see prison labor modified so that there is labor that that takes that form. So what is what is called the communal class process rather than the slave class process. And, you know, a lot of things about prison life would have to change in order for us to have the social and political and economic forces converge so that we we have the understanding that that's how we ought to be organized in prisons. And one aspect of it certainly is that inmates could get together and say, we're just not going to accept this anymore. Um, 
And I, you know, in, inmates are, are doing just that on, on September 9th. And I think that's a very positive development. Uh, it's, it's hard for people to unify behind any idea. Um, and it's hard to unify behind a principle that's bigger than oneself. Um, but, you know, this is how, this is how things move forward. Thousands of prisoners in some 24 states engaged in a work strike September 9th, protesting their forced labor for no or little pay, along with a number of other dangerous and unhealthy conditions and practices that confront the more than 2 million people incarcerated in the United States. Corporate media could barely have shown less interest. One CBS report, an AP story, and some local accounts in Florida and Alabama were about it, as we tape on September 15th. The U.S., we're told, is engaged in a newly serious conversation about mass incarceration. Leave it to elite media to think they can host that conversation without talking to incarcerated people. Joining us to talk about the strike and the issues behind it is Noelle Hanrahan. She's an investigative journalist, a private investigator, and the director of the multimedia production studio Prison Radio. She joins us by phone from Philadelphia. Welcome back to Counterspin, Noelle Hanrahan. Thank you for having me. Well, invoking slavery to describe prison labor, as we've heard some inmate organizers do, is not metaphor, really, the 13th Amendment outlawed slavery in 1865, quote, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, close quote. What are some of the work conditions and other conditions that striking prisoners were hoping to direct attention to? I think we really have to realize that all of the prison systems in this country are based on prison labor. They couldn't run without the prisoners. So 98% of all the work done to maintain these extensive housing projects, this vast amount of public housing really, is done by prisoners. And that's the main work. There are other companies that come in and use workers, but it's not the main problem. The main problem is the warehousing of a workforce. So people are targeted for mass incarceration in this country like no other country in the world. One in 99 people are in prison. One in 46 people will do prison time. And if you add in race, one in three black men will do prison time. So the economy is targeting people by race, by class, and by place. What they need humanely, education, resources, work, jobs, and a society that provides for everyone. Well, it's interesting that you're talking about the prison as an economy, which is certainly the frame of this strike, but I think it may be maybe a new way of seeing it for some people. The the Free Alabama movement is key here as uh, prison organizers, and the co-founder, Kinetic Justice, made exactly this point that 
He said, we tried petitioning the courts. We tried appealing to legislators about our conditions. You know, we, we wrote letters. We did all of that with the political process, and it didn't work. And we realized that this is an economic enterprise. And so now we're organizing around our, our labor. There are two ways of looking at it. One is, say if you're outside of prisons, every single budget decision in local, state, county, federal, is based almost entirely on what we're spending for our prisons. We make a choice. We're spending money on prisons and warehousing people or preschools. I mean, the same could be said about war as well. But these are two huge ticket items, right? Now, the other thing is, Inside prisons, there's a vast amount of people, millions, two million, you know, in cities and jails and county jails. We're talking about in a place where people are oppressed and that the conditions that they suffer are extreme and are very biased, very, very, very akin to slavery. If people refuse to go to work, if they refuse to get in line, if they refuse to do the simplest things, they are often brutalized in the extreme. And they are often put in isolation and control units and holes. Almost every single institution in the United States has a segregation unit that is used as a punishment unit. They use calorie reduction. Uh, Many of the hunger strikes that we've seen and some of the other protests that we've seen were based on penalties for limited calories, that they were actually taking people's food and visits and clothing. And you're making the point that it's an economic issue inside the prison, then also an economic issue for the local area in which that prison is situated. The bodies of prisoners are commodities, and we can see this in a number of ways. When upstate or rural areas have prisons situated in them, they get added representation, added congresspeople. Now, the prisoners are barred from voting. But the communities where those prisoners are warehoused and stored have added representation. So that's just one clear example of how they commodify bodies of prisoners. Well, I did want to note this one report on CBS Money Watch by Amy Peachy, which was substantive. And there were, as I say, a few other pieces. But really, if people heard about this story, they heard about it from people communicating outside of and around the corporate media. And I guess I find that both frustrating and hopeful. You have been doing the work around this set of issues for many years now. Do you see improvement or change in media's attention to the rights of the incarcerated? I think that the issue is so dominant within the culture because there are so many people who are incarcerated, you really can't not see it. Then also internationally, we're so out of step. I mean, it's really unprecedented worldwide, the kind of incarceration that we have. Nobody else does it this way. And also in the past, 30 to 40 years, we've experienced an incarceration boom. Now, in fact, many of these policies are criminogenic. They create crime. So it's really a vicious cycle that we have to get out of. And I think what we need more of is we need more of a bright, white, hot spotlight shined on these issues. And we have been missing that from the press 
because of probably the destruction of investigative newsrooms, Mm -hmm. and also courageous legislators. I went to get a master's in criminal justice at Boston University because I was so distressed at the trajectory of what was happening. And in those courses, we never once studied anything outside of the U.S. It was all about fixing this broken system. And I think we have to actually look around because no one, no one does it like this. We have more violence and we have more crime and we have the highest per capita imprisonment population in the world. And we need a trend toward abolition. We need a trend toward restorative justice. This trend that we've been experiencing for the last 40 years has to go dramatically in the reverse for the health of the society. The strike didn't just bubble up, of course. It was organized over a period of time. There has been written down calls to action from various groups, model legislation, as we say. It was scheduled for the 45th anniversary of the Attica uprising. We can expect to see more of this kind of action, do you think, from from prisoners? You know, where you oppress people and where there is bias and behavior that's fundamentally immoral, where there's a lack of health care, where there are people dying in infirmaries in prison, you're going to see resistance. And you're going to see people really taking steps to further their own human dignity and express themselves. So this is not going to stop. It's going to be led by the inside. People inside prison are going to lead this. And it's been going all the way across the country. I mean, it's been happening all over. We saw the hunger strikes in California. We saw strikes in Ohio. We saw strikes in Wisconsin. It is not going to stop because people will demand their freedom. with us is uh, Maya Shenwar. Maya is the editor-in-chief of Truth Out, uh, where they publish my daily takes every day. And you can find two of my books, actually, on their uh, Rebooting the American Dream and Unequal Protection that you can read online for free over at truthout.org. And uh, she is the author of Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better. Uh, the uh, website truthout.org. You can tweet Maya at Maya at M-A-Y-A. Shenwar, S-C-H-E-N-W-A-R, or at Truthout. Maya, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks for joining us. You know, I think the vast majority of Americans have no idea that we are in the second week of what is probably the largest national prison strike in the history of the United States. Can you tell us about this? Yeah. So this is the largest prison strike, prison labor strike in history. And I've also been really surprised with how little media attention it's gotten, even given the the quality of most of our mainstream media in this country. There's just been this silence. And 
This has been going on since September 9th. It started on the anniversary of the Attica Rebellion. And the way that this prison labor strike has been framed is a call to end slavery in America. So most specifically, that refers to labor that's happening in prison, which is either very low paid or even unpaid. There, there are people who are working behind bars for free, especially in particular states. And this strike, which emerged largely out of Alabama, which is a place where people are working for, for very, very low wages, sometimes doing work like making license plates for the government, doing agricultural labor for pennies. So Attica was not um, ignored by the media. I mean, this is the anniversary of Attica. Attica was, what, some 30, 40 years ago, wasn't it? I mean, I, yeah. my recollection is it happened when I was um, a kid. 45, yeah. 45 years 45. ago. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, is that because at Attica, I mean, there was an actual riot? As my recollection is there were even a few people killed. Is, is, it, is it simply that if no one dies, if there's no massive amount of blood, our news media just doesn't talk about things? I think that that's a huge part of it. And of course, in Attica, what happened was prisoners actually held down a yard. They, they occupied the prison and there was a raid and guards were, were not only brought in, but there were larger authorities involved and people were killed. And that, that type of thing does draw media attention, but most of what's happening inside of prisons goes completely unnoticed. And that's not just in terms of actions, because actually actions often, often are covered by at least some of the media, but what happens in prison on a day-to-day -day basis. Part of the foundation of prison is the fact that it's invisible, that we're disappearing people from society. And so that function of prison in a situation like this makes it so that unless something so extraordinary happens, and as you said, so bloody that the media sees it as a story that will really draw eyeballs, it just goes unnoticed. And I think that like one of the really sad things about the fact that this strike is not being reported is that it calls attention to so many different issues that are really integral to understanding our prison system. The organizers are calling attention to not only prison labor, but also the school-to-prison pipeline, police violence, and the role that police play in being the gateway to the prison system. They're drawing attention to conditions within prisons beyond labor. And which is really important because many, many people in prison are not working. And so I think that if there were more media attention, this strike and this organizing would really be exposing some of the larger issues that people are facing right. with mass incarceration. Right. So so uh, it, and, and the and the form of this, the, uh, this kind of started out as a we're not slaves strike, didn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I think that we really need to think about the fact that in more ways than one, prison is grounded in slavery. Prison evolved out of slavery. So one thing that's often referenced is the fact that the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, has this loophole 
where if you're convicted of a crime, you can still be enslaved. That's legal. And so after slavery was abolished, many black people were then arrested for small things like loitering, like vagrancy, and then incarcerated and re-enslaved. And so right put in, now- Put in work gangs, basically, at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. All over the and South. Often, often employed or employed at prisons that were built on plantations themselves. So like in Louisiana, Angola prison, that was a plantation. And now people in prison are there picking cotton, primarily black. Today? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Today. So we, in, uh, we went from what the, the Southerners, the Confederates, love to euphemistically call plantations. I prefer to call them concentration camps. But we, we went from these, uh, from these so-called plantations. Um, when slavery ended, they simply flipped and said, okay, instead of, instead of having the slave owners take responsibility for the slaves, we'll have the state take responsibility for the slaves and still provide those slaves to us, the, the plantation owners, the concentration camp owners. Is that, is that what happened? Right. Absolutely. And I think that you and can it's happening see it to this day. Happening. You can see it still happening. And it's not just in the way that incarcerated people are doing agricultural labor, because most of them are not doing agricultural labor. But the scholar Ruth Wilson Gilmore actually describes this really well in that slavery is still can still very much be seen in the institution of prison not only in that people in prison are continuing to do that kind of labor, but that they are the ones tasked with keeping the system going. So just like enslaved people were tasked with maintaining the institution of slavery, people in prison, a lot of the labor they're doing is to maintain the prison itself. Whether it's they're mopping floors or ground. cooking the food they're or doing, doing the maintenance. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And keeping that system that oppresses them going, that is what they're tasked with. Doing. Is there is the is there any central uh, online organizing point for this prison strike or for people who want to support this prison strike? Yeah. So the outside organization that's been doing a lot of the work with it is the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, which is a coalition of people inside and outside of prisons. And they've also been working very closely with organizations like the Free Alabama Movement, which is coming from inside of prisons. And this this coalition has been building for years. I would definitely encourage people to check it out online. And also to keep in mind that the heart of this strike, of course, started with incarcerated people themselves. So when we think about supporting these movements, I think the first thing that we have to do is learn about what are people doing inside of prison and remember that, you know, the agency lies with them in terms of driving right. this resistance. Right. Is there a particular website or Facebook page that we can refer people to if they want to pitch in? Yeah, help out, participate? the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee is the, the first place to look. And then there have also just, just been Google that name. Incarcerated yeah. Workers yeah, think, Organizing and Committee. Also the Free Alabama Movement. There's a lot of great information that you can find by by seeking that out. 
And I would also encourage people to read James Kilgore's piece on Truth Out, which came out on Friday, that that really goes into the detail about some of the grounding of this prison strike. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. All day long they're saying, A nationwide prison strike has entered its third week, with a reported 20 prisons in 11 states engaged in work stoppage by prison laborers, or, increasingly, acts of solidarity like hunger strikes or work slowdowns to call attention to unfair labor practices and inhumane conditions, including the punitive denial of food and medical care. In Alabama, a small group of prison guards failed to show up at work after the funeral of a guard who had been fatally stabbed in an overcrowded facility. A correctional officer and AFSCME representative told TakePart.com that action highlighted how more humane conditions for prisoners would create safer working conditions for officers. Meanwhile, Azora Crispino of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee told Democracy Now! that the focus has shifted to dealing with repressive retaliation. Prisoners at one Michigan prison had a meeting with their warden after a peaceful march, but this was followed by a riot repression team that pulled inmates from their cells, zip-tied their arms, and left them outdoors in the rain for several hours. None of this, however, is of note to the elite press corps, who make more clear each day that phrases like comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable might be suitable for engraving on journalism awards, but they're not for day-to-day practice. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, support prison strikers by joining actions around the country. As you've heard today, possibly for the first time, thanks to a media blackout, the largest prison strike in history is happening right now. For the last month, inmates at prisons around the U.S. refuse to show up for their prison-mandated jobs where they make pennies on the hour, or in some states, nothing at the benefit of major companies like McDonald's and Walmart. They have nothing in the way of workers' rights or worker protections or the ability to form unions, and our 13th Amendment says that that's okay. FreeAlabamaMovement.wordpress.com is the website run by the inmates at the Alabama prison spearheading this aptly named Freedom Movement. 
The site's announcement of the strike proclaimed, quote, in one voice rising from the cells of long-term solitary confinement, echoed in the dormitories and cell blocks from Virginia to Oregon, we prisoners across the United States vow to finally end slavery in 2016, unquote. These inmates are striking in the face of retaliation. We already know that some have been put in isolation for their actions, but a few have been able to bravely speak to reporters via contraband cell phones. But while the rest of the media largely ignores the strike and prison wardens deny that anything serious is going on at all, calls for more public support are surfacing. Itsgoingdown.org is a citizen-driven repository of news and analysis on all kinds of acts of rebellion and revolt in North America, and a post on this site is calling for a resurgence of actions in our communities October 15th to 22nd to show support for the inmates and amplify their message. You can find an action near you at the bottom of that post, or create an action and submit it to itsgoingdown.org to be posted. The New Yorker is one of the few major publications actually talking about the strike. In their article, an Alabama inmate said, quote, I want to clarify that it is not slave-like conditions in prison labor. This is actually institutionalized slavery. Slavery was always about exploiting the labor of lower-class people in this country, unquote. From private prisons to the school-to-prison pipeline to the rights of prisoners and former prisoners to criminal justice reform, we have a long way to go when it comes to upending our prison state rooted in America's institutional racism. So make these issues part of your ongoing theory of change by getting involved in the long term with organizations like the Advancement Project, the ACLU, the Brennan Center for Justice, Fair Vote, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and other organizations working to achieve racial justice. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. As Nelson Mandela once said, quote, No one truly knows a nation until one has been inside its jails. A nation should not be judged by how it treats its highest citizens, but its lowest ones, unquote. So if you want to work toward a society we can all be proud of, then be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting these prison strikers by joining actions around the country via social media so that others in your network can take action too. Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how we make a difference in this fickle world of change. On Saturday, just before I sat down with Ava DuVernay, I sat down with two of the people featured in the film, among those who are in the film, Michelle Alexander, Angela Davis, Common writes the music, but Malkia Cyril of the Center for Media and Justice and Kevin Gannon of Grandview University in Iowa. I started by asking Malkia what she wanted the film to convey. 
My biggest hope is that people will understand two things. One, that slavery has already been amended once. Let's not do it again. As we get all this technology pouring into the hands of police officers, electronic monitoring, aerial surveillance over Baltimore, it's critical that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past and turn our communities into open-air prisons, even as we decarcerate the, the facilities themselves. So that's the biggest thing that I hope people walk away with. And two, I want people to walk away with the knowledge that, you know, this country was built on the bones, the, the, the work, the labor, the lives of black bodies. It continues to profit from that exploited labor. If we continue to profit from this system that we call white supremacy, that we don't want to accept or acknowledge. And that system is going to come to excuse me, that system is going to come to an end. Hmm. Professor Gannon, this trajectory from the 13th Amendment uh, to mass incarceration, take us on that journey. Well, as the, as the film talks about, the third, you know, we, we like to look at the 13th Amendment as something that ended slavery. You know, the Civil War ended slavery. That's our mythology. But of course, it doesn't. You know, slavery persists. And slavery is a state of profound unfreedom, of not being an autonomous individual, of being owned and subjugated under another. So the clause in the 13th Amendment that says, you know, except in the cases of criminal imprison, you know, incarceration, that's the lever. Explain that. Well, it's the 13th Amendment says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall be permitted. So it becomes unconstitutional. But there is that dependent clause in there, except in the cases of having committed a crime. And so here is this lever now to basically carry forward slavery under a different guise. You know, slaves have prison uniforms now. And so the, the convict labor gangs of the late 19th century and the early 20th century, that's not a coincidental. That's not a novel invention. If you look at immediately after the Civil War, the, the ex-Confederate states passed laws uh, called Black Codes that basically criminalize an entire range of behavior. You could be in prison for a year if you were arrested for vagrancy. And vagrancy was defined so broadly. I mean, things like walking down the street and looking impudently at somebody, not being able to produce your labor contract for the plantation that you were working for. You know, see, so this was mass criminalization of blackness. It was an attempt to re retain as much as slavery as possible. Possible without the name slavery. And then take it forward to now. Well, it's, I mean, it's, that's the, that's the structure that's built. You know, it's just, it, it continues upon the structures of inequality built before the Civil War. Uh, it maintains the, the, the racial caste system that the United States was built on, as Malkia said, and continues to profit from. And as long as African Americans and people of color are seen as the other, as dehumanized, as outside of civil society, that's where we get to today, and it's just different iterations built upon that same structural outlook. We just heard clips today starting with an excerpt from the documentary William Kunstler, Disturbing the Universe, laying out the details of the Attic prison riots. Democracy Now! then discussed the 45-year anniversary of the Attica riot. The Young Turks gave a quick breakdown on why prison labor is like modern-day slavery. The Real News has a recurring segment about our prison nation called Rattling the Bars, and in this one they interviewed the economist who examined prison labor through a Marxist perspective to try to firmly define the nature of slavery in modern America. 
Counterspin spoke with Noel Hanrahan about the current prison strikes. Similarly, Tom Hartman spoke with Maya Shinwar on the topic. Counterspin highlighted some of the important stories about the strike that the media is all but blacking out. Our activism for today is to give some guidance on how you can be supportive of these strikes. And finally, we just heard from Democracy Now! discussing the brand new film by Ava DuVernay, 13th, about the 13th Amendment and the evolution of slavery in America that was released this very day on Netflix. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. Uh, no time for voicemails today, so I just want to thank a few people, of course, all of you for listening, the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible, thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And I just want to say today that I had no idea that this new documentary, the Ava DuVernay documentary, was coming out today. The timing is completely coincidental. Um, but just imagine how happy I was to hear that. You know, here I am. I spent the last couple of days listening to upwards of 15 hours of news, commentary, and interviews about how slavery is alive and well in America and uh, you know, our, our prison population is systemically uh, dehumanized and abused. And then I'm making the show today, and I get an email from one of the organizations whose data was used in the film, so they were promoting the film. And I was like, unbelievable. I get to watch more of this stuff. I get to learn even more about the horrors of our justice system. Uh I can't wait. So as soon as I'm done putting this show to bed, whereas I would normally get to stop thinking about whatever horrible thing I had just done a show on, now I'm going to, you know, curl up on the couch and get cozy and watch even more information on this terrible, terrible topic. So here's your uh, homework for the weekend. I think you should do the same. Uh, go to, you know, if you have Netflix or you know how it works, someone else's Netflix account password, go and watch the new uh, Ava DuVernay documentary. You remember, she's the one who uh, directed Selma. If you if that maybe sounded familiar, but you forgot where she was from, she directed Selma. So go watch her documentary and then call in to this show and give your thoughts about it. You know, if we get some interesting comments, we'll have a little uh, you know, film club in the next episode. So that number again, write it down now, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained